Well, uh, this morning we are going to be in John chapter 11. So if you're, if you're here visiting with us this morning, um, the way that we approach God's Word together as a congregation is to take big chunks of it and to work sequentially through them. So right now, our congregation is in a study of the Gospel of John. It's one of the oldest accounts of Jesus' life and teaching. We started unpacking it together right at the beginning of the year. We plan to spend the whole year in John. And what we do is we just take whatever's the next text. So last week we looked at part of John chapter 10. This morning we get here, we're uh, on John chapter 11. Um, We're going to be here both this morning and come back to it again next week because there's so much here. What we come to in John this morning is the final of what John calls Jesus' signs. Now, if you're not familiar with this book, this book of John, chances are you are familiar uh, with, with the fact that Jesus is described in these ancient texts as a miracle worker, as somebody who had this great power that no one else had ever, had ever shown, and that his power had the, had the, gave him the ability to break into the normal and to, to do dramatic, incredible things. One of the things you may not know is that John in his story of Jesus, describes Jesus' miracles a little bit differently than the other gospel writers. So they describe his miracles, and they're pointing you to the fact that Jesus has a power that no one else has ever had. John describes these miracles as signs. That's his word for them. And the reason he uses that word, the reason he chooses to tell us about the specific powerful things that he chooses to tell us about is that he thinks these particular things, out of all the things he could have told us, these specific things he's chosen to include signify or symbolize something about the nature of Jesus' work. So if you're going to run for office, chances are, as a candidate, you choose a place to announce your candidacy that has symbolic power to it, right? It speaks to what kind of candidate you want to be, what kind of, what kind of office holder you would be if you, if you got enough votes. So a candidate who announces on the steps of a big old factory is somebody who's for the working man, right? I bring a lunchbox to the Capitol every day. Somebody who, somebody who announces uh, on Wall Street is, is signaling he's going to be for business, or maybe he's going to clean it up. I don't know, one way or the other. But he's gonna, his, his focus will be on the business culture of our country. Somebody who announces on the steps of his grandpappy's farmhouse is probably evoking nostalgic connections of family and home and place and rural values, the way America should be, the way it used to be, Right? where you announce has symbolic weight. It's a sign of what to expect from you. So when John talks about Jesus doing, doing miracles and calls them signs, he's saying something very similar. He's saying when you see Jesus do this, what you're getting is a sign of everything he came to do, of all that he came to do and all that he came to provide. The sign that we come to in chapter 11 is the last one. It's the climactic sign. It's the one that everything else has been building to. It captures in itself the essence of what Jesus came to accomplish, the essence of what he promises to every single one of you. It's all about life and death and the glory of Jesus. In this sign, Jesus confronts one of the most quintessentially human realities. He confronts something that is as basic to human experience as life itself. And that is, the reality of death. His response to the problem of death and what he plans to do about it comes through in the details, the twists and turns of this story. And what he says, what it points us to, is consistently surprising. And what I want to do this morning is help you see it in the surprising light that it should land on you. 
I, I want to just walk through the story. That's my only goal for us this morning and try to bring to the surface the twists and turns that you need to recognize if you want to get the sign. Then next week, we're going to come back to the same story and we're going to try to unpack it a little bit more for what we take from it. We're going to point to that some this, this morning, but this morning we want the details of the story to land on you. Next week, we'll come back over and try to, try to unpack it for our purposes together. Now, it's a long story. We're going to be covering 44 verses this morning. So we're not going to stand together and read the whole thing. My plan is for us to read it and unpack it um, in chunks so that it's more fresh when I'm actually talking about a section rather than reading the whole thing and then talking about it for the next, the next little bit here. What I do want to do, though, is have, have you stand together as we read the first section of this story because our standing symbolizes our honor and, and the, the reverence that we have for God's Word. So I'm going to ask you now if you would stand. I'm going to read John chapter 11, the first 16 verses, the opening scene of the story of Jesus confronting the death of Lazarus. This is the Word of the Lord. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but They thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also, that we may die with him. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. What I want to do this morning as we follow the twists and turns of the story is bring to the surface what it is in, that we see in Jesus as Jesus confronts the reality of death. I want to point us to death and the love of Jesus, death and the sorrow of Jesus, death and the anger of Jesus, and finally, death and the power of Jesus. And in the section we just read, we're pointed towards death and the love of Jesus, and it isn't in the way that you would expect The scene is pretty straightforward. There's a man who's sick, Lazarus, and he's at the point of death. And this man wasn't just any man to Jesus. This is the first time we hear his name in this story, but there's, John's already told us, there's a ton of things happening that we don't, that I couldn't even tell you about. It would have taken 
more books than any one man could write to tell you everything that Jesus has done. And apparently part of what had happened was Jesus had connected with this family and he loved them. That comes through over and over again. Did you notice it? It comes through in verse 2 where we're told that it's Mary. This is the family of the woman who anointed him. John hasn't even told us about that story yet. That comes a little bit later, but he knows that his readers will, will know who he's talking about. This is the woman who's, whose connection to him was so intimate, she is the one who poured out her anointment on him before he died. Then we get it again in, in um, the sister's message to Jesus. Verse 3, the sisters send to him, and their identification of this man is not by name, but by Jesus' affection for him. Who is he? Who is it that's sick? It's the one that you love. And then it comes through again in verse 5. As if, as if you could have missed the point by now, John makes sure you get it. Now Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And it's this emphasis over and over and over on the love of God that makes what comes next shocking. The love of Jesus for this family doesn't square very well, at least in our minds, with what John tells us in verse 6. What do you normally expect? What would you expect, I wonder, of somebody who has the power that Jesus has been described as having? A miracle worker. Somebody who could do what he wants. Not limited by the the laws of the universe. What would you expect of a guy like that when he hears that somebody that he loves in the way that that it's described here is about to die? How would you react if you were Jesus and had his power? I remember vividly. I'm guessing you guys have experiences like this too. I remember vividly right where I was and what I was doing when I got the call from my dad that my grandfather, who I was really close to, that his cancer had returned after treatment and that it was too far gone, that there was nothing much more they could do but make him comfortable. I remember that. I remember what that felt like. I'm sure you have too. Someone you love, news that their, that their illness isn't going back. The, 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 the life-changing moment that, that that news brings to you. Jesus just heard that. If I had his power... Loving my grandfather as I did. Loving my grandmother, not wanting to see her in pain and sorrow. Loving my father, not wanting to see him hurt. What I would have done if I had Jesus' power, I'd have been looking for the nearest phone booth, right? I'd go Clark Kent, right? Go in and and come out with superpowers racing against time to get there, right? Or even more precisely, if I had the power Jesus had, we've seen him already in action. Back in chapter 4, Jesus hears that somebody's on the point of death. You know what he does? He speaks a word. He just says, go. Your son's well. Healed from a distance. If I had Jesus' power, I hear that Lazarus is ill, I'm going to say, go. He's better. Done deal. But that's because we expect that the loving thing must mean taking away the pain of the beloved right then and right there. We assume that the loving thing is to keep those that we love from pain. The loving thing is to bring about, to make possible, to secure for them what they believe is best for their lives. I think that's our assumption. Nothing in our natural response prepares us for what John tells us next in verse 6. Did you notice the detail there? Verse 5 has just 
told us that Jesus loved, again, told us again, that Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Verse 6 begins with a connecting word, with a so or a therefore. Because Jesus loved them, therefore, he stayed two days longer in the place that he was. When Jesus heard he was sick, because he loved him, he waited. Because he loved them, he withheld his power. Because he loved him, he did nothing. Why? Jesus' next comments to his disciples, they point us towards some more of the details, more of the reasons, but they don't fully explain it. Jesus tells his disciples that Lazarus has fallen asleep. They think he means he's just taking a nap. They think it's a sign that the sickness is lifting. He's resting comfortably. So why go? Put yourself in danger of being killed again. Let's, let's call the trip off. Jesus spells it out for them. Not asleep. Dead. And then Jesus says, I'm glad I'm not, I wasn't there. Jesus is rejoicing. In the death of the one that he loves. He's rejoicing in the sorrow of those that he loves. And the reason he rejoices in the pain of those that he loves is that they might believe. Verse 15 spells it out. For your sakes, I am glad I was not there so that for the purpose of you believing. He doesn't spell things out here, but so far the steps are clear. Here's what we've seen. Jesus loves everybody that's involved here. Loves them with a unique, knowing kind of love. Because he loves them, he allows death to run its awful course. He does not stop it. Because he loves them. And because he loves them, he rejoices at the awful effects of death. Because he loves them, what he wants for them is not freedom from the pain that they're experiencing now. What he wants for them most of all is that they would believe. That's what the text tells us. Love doesn't mean preventing all pain, but doing what's best for us. That's what the text says. As Jesus defines it, what's best is that we believe. Now, I wonder how that lands on you. He doesn't try to clean it up or make it sound any better. He just expects you to take it for what it is. Does that seem cold to you, I wonder? Does it seem maybe even worse than cold? Does it seem sadistic? Does it seem maybe like he's playing with them? Almost like a young boy who's captured a frog just toying with him. I want us to read on so that you see that nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus is deeply moved by the reality that he willingly allowed. The reality he willingly allowed causes him great sorrow. At the same time, that he chose to let it happen and is experiencing some sort of gladness or joy that it happened, at the same time, he is also 
sorrowful over death. That's what I want you to see. I'm going to read the next section of the story. I'm going to pick it up in verse 17 and read through verse 37. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Where we pick up the action, Jesus is coming into the vicinity of Bethany, where where this family had lived, where doubtless he had spent many wonderful, intimate moments with them to this point, the meals they must have shared together, the fun times that they had had. Surely as he's approaching that village, those memories are coming back to him. We're talking about someone who was fully human, who experienced life just like we do. As he approaches Martha and then later Mary, they come to Jesus with an almost identical statement. Did you notice that? They say almost the same thing to him. It's what one person has called not, not, not a protest to him, but a statement of grief and of faith. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. How many times have you asked a similar or made a similar statement to yourself or asked a similar question of him? If you really have this power and you love us like you say you do, what gives? Underneath their statement, underneath their conviction that he has the power to do something, underneath all of that is a sense that they just don't understand why things have happened the way that they have. 
Notice verse 33 and following. This is the key for following Jesus as he confronts death, for seeing in his response to death something about his heart. When Jesus confronts Mary and her weeping, when he sees, when he experiences what he had known before would be true, that she would be greatly, uh, greatly grieved by the death of her loved, beloved brother, when, when he sees it with his own eyes, when he experiences what he knew was true, sees her weeping, we're told that he is greatly troubled. We see him, Jesus, Son of God, Word made flesh. We see him break down in tears. The word that gets translated here as greatly troubled is a deep or inner grief, something that's sincere, something that's unlike the sort of professional grieving that would have happened at this time. Part of the, part of the culture's traditions was to, to even hire grievers, mourners, to come with you to the funeral to, to keep up a loud sort of uh, wailing cry. Jesus, I mean, he's not making a show of it. His grief is real. I hope that you have never been tempted to believe that faith in Jesus means that you lose the right to grieve over the brokenness of the world. As if your grief at what happens to you and to those that you love is somehow a sign of weak faith. Friends, that is not the case. Jesus wept. And the more clearly we see the beauty of what Jesus promises us, the more clearly we are locked in on the world that he is bringing about, the more deeply we will be moved by everything in our experience now that doesn't measure up, the more sensitive we will be to every violation of what he wants for us. Jesus knew that Lazarus was going to die. Jesus in a way, made sure that Lazarus died by not intervening. He knew that he was about to give Lazarus life. He knew that that there was hope because he had the power in himself to do it. And still, the reality of death and the effects of death broke his heart. How can it be true at the same time that someone who is all-powerful and has the ability to orchestrate this precise situation and has the ability to redeem it and will do so a few minutes after this? How can it be true that at the same time that person who has made this happen could be grieved over it? He's not like us. He is not like us. In the phrase of C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, he is not a tame lion. He will not be put into the nice and neat categories that we would lock him into. He's complicated. But it's real. What you can't say about him, even if we can't understand him, what you can't say about him in the terms of this story is that he doesn't care that he in his power, in his puppet mastering of the situation, stands above its effects on real people. What you can't say is that he's sadistic, 
This is not a boy toying with a captured frog. This is a man living through the real effects of the death of someone he loves. But there's more too. There's more to Jesus' response than just sorrow. In the verses that we've already read, one in verse 33, there's another word that comes up. It reveals another dimension to Jesus confronting the reality of death. Not just his love on display here, not just his sorrow, but also his anger. There's a, a word in verse 33. In, in my translation, it comes through deeply moved. That's weak, according to the experts. What do I know? But according to the experts that I read, that's a weak translation. Of course, the experts who wrote these commentaries are probably the ones who translated it, so who knows? You can work that out among themselves. It's not deeply moved. It's, it's more specific than that. Here's the way one of them put it. Same word comes up, by the way, in verse 38. Jesus deeply moved again. Same word. And here's what it means. Here's what one of the commentators said. In extra-biblical Greek, in other words, same language used to write the Bible, but in sources besides the Bible that we have from that time, or we kinda, which we kind of use to get a handle on what words mean, in extra-biblical Greek, it can refer, this word can refer to the snorting of horses. As applied to human beings, this is, this is the key, it invariably suggests anger, outrage, or emotional indignation. Jesus is outraged when he sees the reality and the effects of death. What is he mad about? You notice in the story, there's not really a specific object of his anger. It isn't clear. Some people suggest, well, maybe he's mad at the people who were just professionals who'd come here just to wail as if they really cared, but they didn't. But it doesn't seem like it. He's not spelled out there. He doesn't seem to be mad at Mary and Martha. They're, they're expressing faith. They're not expressing a lack of faith. They're saying, you could have done something. You have power. What's he mad about? The option that I think makes the most sense is that he is angry. He is outraged in his soul at death. What he sees is that death itself is an assault on all that he loves. Death itself is a threat to the world that he made. Death is a threat to all things beautiful. It puts an end to all things good. It puts an end to the relationships that are at the center of his purposes for the world, that we would love him and love each other. Death cuts it off. And he is outraged. Death is the mortal enemy that he came to eliminate once and for all. Death might be, what we already said, death might be one of the most normal things about human experience. It might be one of the most normal things, but it is not right. And he will not stand for it. Death is an imposter that will be wiped away. And it enrages the same Son of God, who in this case decided to let it happen. He's complicated. He's complicated, but here's one thing that's clear. In his anger, approaching the death of his friend, he points us to, a, a sim, he gives us a symbol or a sign of what he came here to do. 
Here, I'm going to read you one of my favorite comments on this passage. This is old. It's been about 100 years ago. A guy named B.B. Warfield. Here's how he describes, in a little bit outdated language, good, it's good language. Here's how he describes what he thinks is going on here when Jesus approaches the death of Lazarus and is outraged. It is death, Warfield writes, that is the object of his wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he has come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but his soul is held by rage. And he advances to the tomb, in Calvin's words, as a champion who prepares for conflict. The raising of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated marvel. It's not just him sort of showing his stuff. But a decisive instance, an open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. What John does for us in this particular statement, Orfield writes, is to uncover to us the heart of Jesus as he wins for us our salvation. Not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe, Jesus smites in our behalf. One last step to bring the story to its conclusion. Verses 38 through 44 point us to death and the power of Jesus. Let me read this last section together. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he'd said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. These verses bring the story to its conclusion. They help us to see why the loving thing isn't always what we want, but is always what we need. It's been four days since Lazarus had died. In Jewish folklore, if you will, around this time, there was a belief that the spirit of the body hovered around the grave looking for a chance to re-enter the body for three days. And once that spirit saw the decaying process start to kick in, it got out of there. And who knows if that's in John's mind or Jesus' mind as he, as he works out the details of this story. But it's four days after he's been in the tomb that Jesus comes to do business with the dead. Jesus commands them to remove the stone and Martha warns him, Lord, the smell! After four days, sitting cooped up in a, in a cave? Can you imagine? 
Jesus' response to Martha and his prayer to God point us to why things had to happen like they did. His response to Martha, his prayer to God, show us what's been guiding him all along. And the primary, the primary guiding principle for how he loves us, for what his love wants to do in us, is not first and foremost keep us from pain, but show us the glory of God so that we see it and believe. Did I not tell you? If you believe, you would see the glory of God. Thank you, Father, you've heard me, but now we're going to do this on behalf of those who are standing around. We want them to see. Here's the point, friends. If you're going to believe in Jesus, if he's ever going to seem right to you, if you're ever going to hear his promises to you and be moved to trust in him because of those promises, then, what, then there's something you're going to have to see. There's something you've got to confront head on. It's at the heart of who he is and what he came to do. And if you don't see it, you won't really believe in him. If you want to believe, you've got to see the glory of God. And the place to see the glory of God, according to Jesus, is in the reality of death. If you don't see death as a real, present, vivid thing in front of you, if you don't see death as the final enemy that Jesus came to wipe away, then you will not fully believe in who he is as the Son of God who came for you. You've got to get up close and personal with the ugly and painful and awful reality of death and all of its effects. There is no way around it. Like a champion confronting his enemy, Jesus approaches the tomb and he speaks. I love this scene. There's nothing fancy about his words. He doesn't utter some sort of magic incantation. The words aren't the point. The point is the one who speaks those words. Because in this one is a power that once spoke the world into existence. And all that this one needs to say is Lazarus, come out. As one author put it, he had, to, he had to give the name. Because when this man says, come out, without a specific name, every grave on the surface of the earth would have opened. Every decaying body turned to dust would have come out. Because that is the authority of the Son of God made flesh. He speaks, and Lazarus comes out. Nothing fancy about this description. It's clear he is human. He's wrapped up. You can almost imagine him stumbling his way out of the, trying to walk while bound in all of these strips of cloth. But he comes out, and Jesus simply tells him, unbind him and let him go. Now remember, friends, this is a sign. It's a symbol. It points us towards what Jesus came to do and what Jesus came to provide to us. Every sign in John is, is, is about that. It's about giving us a visible, tangible symbol of who Jesus is, what he came to do, what he came to offer us. So what's the sign here? 
We're going to spend all of next week unpacking that, trying to really drive it in so that it becomes a living reality for us. But we can point the way today. points us towards what Jesus came to do. And I was struck this week in recognizing these different categories in Jesus' response to death, his love as it encounters death, his sorrow, his anger, and ultimately his power over it. But these, are the exact, these are the exact same categories that we could use to understand how Jesus approaches his own death. This is where John's taking us. What is it that leads Jesus to go back to Jerusalem knowing they just tried to stone him? He knows they're going to kill him again. He goes because they're going to kill him. He confronts his death with the same foresight with which he confronted Lazarus' death. And it is the same thing that drives him to experience it. It's love. He dies his own death because he loves those that his death will redeem. He dies for the joy set before him. The one who was glad and rejoiced at the death of his friend rejoices at his own death because he loves those who will benefit from it and he knows what's going to happen. But at the same time, knowing that he's dying on purpose, knowing what his death is going to accomplish, having that perfectly in his mind, when he gets there, when the moment comes, he is so sorrowful that he's sweating blood. His whole body is consumed by the weight of what he's doing. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He's orchestrated it all. He's still in it. He's still a man. And confronted with his own death, he still grieves because he knows. He knows that it means separation from his father. Separation from all good and light and truth and beauty that's in the world. That's what death always is. It cuts off everything great about this world. And Jesus was to experience it He was to experience it all. He also showed anger, even at his own death. My God, why have you forsaken me? In the midst of it, doing it on purpose, knowing what it's going to accomplish, the reality of it, and it it cutting him off from, from everything good and beautiful in the world, from the presence of the Father who made all things for himself. In that reality, Jesus is angry at death, even though he chose it. But ultimately, death cannot hold him. Ultimately, as he confronts his own death, it is ironically the greatest display of his power through weakness. Because it is through giving himself up, laying himself down, that he conquers once and for all the greatest threats to all those he loves. It is in his death that he conquers the power of sin, the power of the grave. And when he came out of his tomb, he didn't come stumbling. He didn't come wrapped up in claws that someone else had to untie. He didn't have to adjust his eyes to the light. He came out with a resurrected body that would never die again. And he came out as the first fruits as a symbol or a taste of what will happen to all those who put their trust in Him. If you trust in Jesus, you will not die. That points us to the second, the second thing that this sign is meant, to, meant to, to, to say to us. is that Not only does it point us to what Jesus came to do, but what He offers to you. This passage is for you. It's not just telling you what happened to Lazarus. 
verses 25 and 26, cut across 2,000 years of history so that they meet you where you sit right here this morning and they say this to you. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me Friends, this means you shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Father, we can't believe it unless we're born again. So right here, right now, in this moment, we pray to you for the power of your spirit to give faith to those who lack it. You have that power. We do not. But you've promised that your word doesn't return void. And we ask you right here, right now, in this moment, Father, help us believe. Give the sight that only you can give. You have promised us life. We desperately want it. Before us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.